Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast. I'm Helen McKenna and I'm your host for this episode. Today, we're thinking about the health of those who sleep rough. Listeners will be aware that rough sleeping remains a huge problem in England, with the latest government estimates suggesting that in 2019, around 4,250 people were sleeping on the streets, although the real number may be much higher. The issue became even more prominent during the coronavirus pandemic as the government sought to protect those sleeping rough from catching the virus and spreading it on to others. In recognition of just how vulnerable this population is, the government launched Everyone In, an initiative aimed at putting everyone sleeping on the streets into emergency accommodation. And a recent report by the National Audit Office suggested that the scheme made a huge difference. By November last year, it had reportedly helped over 33,000 people. However, finding long-term solutions to supporting those who sleep rough is about so much more than just putting a roof over people's heads. People who have slept on the streets often have multiple complex needs, and addressing them involves looking at all the factors that make up an individual's life. That includes their social well-being, their education and employment opportunities, their housing, and of course, their physical and mental health. And that last point is what we're going to focus on today. People who sleep rough have some of the worst health outcomes in England. And so supporting those health needs is a critical part of the picture when thinking about rough sleeping. We'll consider in this episode what some of those health needs are, as well as what services can do to support them. And to help us explore this, I'll be speaking with several experts. Two, by virtue of the work they have done in health and homelessness, and one, through his own personal experience. First, let's start with some context and the inside story of the Everyone In initiative. And to help us with that, let's hear from Dame Louise Casey. So, Dame Louise, back in February last year, uh, you were appointed by the Prime Minister to lead a review into the causes of rough sleeping. And then very shortly after that, COVID-19 hit and your role suddenly became one of crisis management and leading the Everyone In initiative. That must have been such a huge challenge. Can you tell us briefly about Everyone In and the approach you took? Essentially what had happened is I was actually doing some work in Australia and Sydney in the fortnight before um, we went into lockdown. And I flew back into the country having basically been in a hotel in Sydney. They very kindly put me up in a hotel and the hotel had emptied and there were plenty of vacancies in said hotel. And they also put uh, just extraordinary, fantastic literature in the room in many different languages, telling us that they would look after us were we to get any symptoms. So hotels were pretty high in my mind. Then, of course, I got home and um, I actually, for all sorts of reasons, I basically bustled my way into uh, the Ministry for Housing and Local Government. It's my former department, so they know me well in there. And I said to Robert Jenrick, um, you know, do you want a hand? And he said, good God, yes. And so that's it, really. I just sort of rolled up my sleeves and and got on with the job. And I think I find it really interesting that the simplicity of this is a public health emergency. We have a virus. It is going to kill people. You have a fighting chance of not uh, letting it kill you if you're able to self-isolate at home and get well. So it was a really simple and straightforward thing that we were doing is I was just um, working with colleagues to try and stay ahead of uh, the virus essentially and to move really really quickly so the job wasn't to end rough sleeping I wasn't the homelessness czar as I was 20 years ago 
I was essentially at the beginning anyway, a volunteer that was advising everybody on how we could move as quickly as humanly possible. And, you know, the Dame Hood comes in useful occasionally when you want to ring the chief exec of the Travelodge. Potentially they might be more likely to take a call from me than they might be if I was, you know, a different person. So, you know, we just threw everything that we had at it. So you, you really were on the phones yourself doing some of this? Oh my God. Yeah. It's relentless. I mean, I'm not exactly a patient person. Um, <laughs> so, you know, if I thought somebody wasn't going to do it, I would ring them myself. And, you know, I wasn't taking no for an answer. The fascinating thing was, of course, we needed such a volume because by then we were working hand in glove with colleagues in health. Now I'll be honest with you, 23 years in Whitehall, home office is pretty impenetrable. The health department is impenetrable. <laughs> it's like, you know, it, it's not because, of course, it runs the NHS. I mean, you know, it runs the national, as I would call it, the National Hospital Service. But that's probably for another podcast. But essentially, I think it, it was so important because none of us on this side, on the civilian side of the shop, we could get the hotels. Uh, everybody was putting their, you know, every local authority in the country went into overdrive. But of course, we had to manage it on health lines and I thought that was that was a huge challenge, actually, that we had to have some hotels that could take people that were symptomatic, COVID symptomatic. We had to have other hotels that could take people with underlying conditions um, and or very significant uh, drug, alcohol and mental health problems. And then we had to have other hotels that were for people who were asymptomatic and also had no underlying conditions because it was clear that we couldn't mix the three that's a huge ask of the charitable sector to do that. Um, and it was the charitable sector that did it. It's not like the NHS did it. We, you know, we begged and borrowed people like Ed Story, fantastic uh, NHS doctor. And, you know, the other thing was, of course, people could self-isolate in their own homes with support of friends and family, even when they got sick you were able and still are able to keep people at home right up until the last minute. Well, you can't do that in homelessness. So are you able to identify what made it such a success that everyone in initiative? You know, there's something really interesting here about the fact it was a health emergency. So we know, for example, that people who sleep on the streets are, I think it's 86% will have a drug, alcohol and or mental health problem. And yet it took this type of uh, health emergency to essentially just make it really clear that we weren't going to have people on the streets and we didn't want people in communal night shelters. And I think that's interesting in itself that I think it's, it's proven a point, really, which is we reduced the number of people sleeping rough on the streets in the UK down to the hundreds 20 years ago. We did it in 2020 for different reasons, but we did it and it was possible. And I think it gives you a real sense that nothing is ever impossible. Everything is possible. We are all human beings and we all have frailties, which means at different points in our lives, we need different things. But in terms of big government problems, rough sleeping is solvable. We've proven it twice now. So I was just going to ask, because you've mentioned about homelessness or rough sleeping, and especially during COVID as a kind of public health emergency. And I saw you talk about, I think there was an article where you describe street homelessness as a public health issue. And I'd just be really interested to hear a little bit more from you about that relationship between health and housing, because as we know that it's so complex and one can lead to the other and the other way around. Tell me a bit more about your thinking. 
So I think what's interesting is the support for everyone in was universal. You know, the government wanted it to happen. Everybody in local government wanted it to happen. Everybody in the charitable sector wanted it to happen. And to be honest, once, you know, you explain to somebody on the street what's going on, they will more, you know, at that point they would come in because people were fearful of getting the virus and also uh, dying from it. I think what's profoundly interesting, though, is that if you look at the people who are long-term rough sleepers, so we know in London, for example, that there are upwards of 2,000 people now who've been on and off the streets or pretty much on the streets for over two years. We know that 86% of those people have very significant health problems, e.g. drug and alcohol addiction and mental health, and, you know, you don't need to you know, look too hard to see of the physical toll that take it, that sleeping on the street takes. Um, we still remember have people that die on the streets. And I think the difference between what happened last year and what happens in peacetime, as it were, is that my drug addiction is mine and I'm not going to spread it to you. Whereas my virus, I can spread to you. So the people who are unhoused can spread the virus to the housed and I think that's where we ought to come back to if we looked at particularly rough sleeping and particularly children growing up in cramped and overcrowded conditions like bed and breakfast hotels, converted office blocks, the sorts of things that we know homeless families are living with, you could actually quantify the health um, deterioration in those families and make a choice that you would see that as a health issue, not a housing issue that actually um, making sure people live in reasonable conditions, even if they're temporary, is, is so important in terms of the health and well-being of, of those children. So I felt, having done the rough sleepers job under the Blair administration so many years ago and reaching a certain level of success, I think in that rough sleepers initiative, we did things like use... Um, that funding for drug and alcohol treatment. So we used essentially housing and homelessness money to purchase health-related money. There is a really important learning, I think, when we come out of all of this about trying to look at what health is and where health spend is and how we do it. Um, and the, at the moment, MA, the Ministry for Housing and Local Government's finances are actually paying for health services for homeless people. And there are days when I wonder, actually, Helen, whether actually you could say as a government, do you know what, we're going to move over the responsibility for rough sleeping and for families that are in long-term appalling accommodation, we're going to hand that over to health because actually that's as much of a health issue as anything else. There's so many issues, actually, that are like that as well, where there's a there's a public health, the, the wider determinants, they're also interlinked. And actually, where do those boundaries end and where does health begin? And they're so permeable. You mentioned that you were working with some NHS doctors. Were health and care services formally involved in the Everyone In initiative? And, and if so, how did they respond? Well, yes, they were. To be fair, in London, Gemma, Gilbert is the London Health Partnerships and frankly deserves a medal. She opened up the door, as it were, and recognised the need um, and was able to deploy 
the NHS in London towards those services. So it was a formal thing, not just Andrew Hayward and Ed at the beginning with me and John from Crisis and Jeremy Swain and, and a few, you know, we were all on calls early on trying to figure out how to do this cohorting and St Mungo's led a huge amount of that work actually that we'd have been lost without them but then it became clear that you know things like PPE uh, and all of those sorts of things you know we have volunteers and frontline workers essentially fronting up hotels we ended up with a scenario where the NHS paid to get Medicine Sans Frontier actually to to help staff a particular hostel a hotel because of course, it was in the NHS's interest, to be fair, to keep those people out of hospital for as long as possible. And if we didn't have that level of support, then um, then they would have had to go into hospital. So it was it, it was in my career the only time, I think, where there was such united working on a, on a health and homelessness agenda in that way. Thank you, Dame Louise. And we'll be picking up with her again in a bit to get her advice for Sir Simon Stevens, Chief Executive of NHS England and NHS Improvement, on what the NHS can do to support this agenda and also get her take on whether the government will be able to meet its commitment to end rough sleeping by 2024. But first, let's speak to Dr Caroline Shulman about what some of the specific health needs are of people who sleep rough. I'm Caroline Shulman. I'm a clinician and a researcher, so a GP worked in inclusion health for around the last 12 years. Inclusion health encompasses people experiencing homelessness, people who are marginalised, other other groups such as asylum seekers, refugees. And I also have been doing some research on palliative care and homelessness and frailty in homelessness. So Caroline, there are some really stark differences, as I understand it, in terms of health outcomes for the general population and then for those who sleep rough. What tends to be the main health differences you observe between this population and the general population? Well, people experiencing homelessness die often extremely young. Um, So we we often see people dying actually in their 20s, 30s, 40s. And the average age of death for people who've been on the street, uh, who on the street are in emergency accommodation, is often in their 40s. And we know also from other data from hospitals that people often die 20 to 30 years younger than housed populations. And the reasons for these deaths are often, there's there's a range of different things, but most long-term conditions are worse in people experiencing homelessness. So for example, there's six times more heart disease, there's at least six times more uh, respiratory disease, People die also from HIV and hepatitis, and those are hugely more, like seven times more. And mental health problems are a huge problem. So a lot of suicides, I think 14 times more than the rest of the population. But also the the, the reasons that people are homeless are often associated with addictions and mental health problems. And we know that there's huge, uh, vast increased risk of dying from drug use. We also see a lot of premature ageing in people who are homeless. We've recently done some work in a hostel in London, which, although the average age of people that we uh, saw were 55, it was a hostel with people with a long history of rough sleeping. They had average frailty scores equivalent to what you'd expect of people in their very late 80s. 
and a wide range of other conditions that you would normally expect in older populations, such as falls and mobility problems uh, and cognitive impairments, uh, so dementia, early onset dementia. Um, and the average number of conditions per person was over seven, which is off the scale from a housed population. What was really interesting in your first answer was just around the link you made between drug addiction and mental health issues sometimes playing a role in leading people to become homeless in the first place. And I was just wondering, is, is that a broader issue, that relationship between health and rough sleeping in that health, health issues can often predate or lead to become a causal factor for people becoming homeless in the first place? Absolutely. So we know that many people who end up homeless have experienced uh, a lot of trauma in their early years. So we know that adverse child experiences, which includes things such as children experiencing neglect or abuse in the home, or living with a parent with an addiction or a parent with mental health problems, uh, can is, is a very high risk factor for them then becoming homeless themselves. And Often those factors as well independently are then related to mental health problems in an adult and addictions in an adult, often the addictions to blank out past trauma or as a way of self-soothing. But in addition, certainly people with other physical health problems uh, fall out of work if the work is unstable and insecure with zero hours contracts, then people um, also become homeless through ill health in that way. But poverty is an overriding risk factor for homelessness as, as well, which and we know that poverty is associated with, with a lot of profound ill health. And to what extent for those people who, who do have mental illness, who have addictions, that then leads to them becoming homeless, to what extent have those people, prior to becoming homeless, been let down by health services and other services in getting the support that they need in order to not then become homeless? Yeah, I think there's years of, of neglect, I suppose, in a way, by the services that should be there to support people. Um, I think it starts very early on in childhood. We know that children who are excluded from school have a very, very high risk of homelessness. We also know there's actually quite a lot of missed um, learning difficulties amongst people who end up homeless. Autism, ADHD, we, there's growing evidence, growing body of evidence that actually people have just not had their issues and their problems diagnosed and that's also another risk factor for them becoming homeless. There needs to be much more support I think early on for children in difficulty and also for families in need, families living in poverty. So I think there's, there's, there's many places where interventions need to happen. We also know that many people go to their GPs when they are at risk of homelessness or are homeless and it's actually really important that, that GPs are really aware and do everything they can to support people with, with letters and with support for um, applications into appropriate housing. And what's the potential role for GPs there? I mean, do they have links in with other services, with local authorities, and are they able to make, make those contacts to support people who present to them initially um, with that risk of becoming homeless? 
Yes, there's a there's quite a lot that GPs can do. GPs can support people, particularly people who have, have health problems. They can help with priority need letters. They can help with letters outlining the risks of homelessness for this person. But any letter from a doctor to support the absolute need for somebody to be helped with accommodation, they are read, they are looked at, and they are important. Great, thank you. Caroline, what about the factors that affect the health of rough sleepers? Is it more than just access to medical services? There, there's many things, I think, that affect rough sleepers in terms of their health. And there's many things, I think, that the health service can be doing more for. One thing is that we need to be ensuring that people are able to register with GPs. Um, there's been a, a big barrier. Um, there still is a barrier uh, and a lot of practices are actually not enabling people to register easily. There's actually no need for people to provide a proof of address or proof of ID at all, but they are still being asked to. There's also a lot of digital exclusion at the moment with COVID as well. But in addition to that, I think they have to be enabled to have really person-centred holistic support. So we're often seeing people, as, as we've mentioned, with quite profound difficulties, mental health, physical health, often extremely profound physical health problems, and also in association often with drug or alcohol addictions. So we need to be starting and seeing people from where they are, giving a, a very much a person-centered holistic approach to their health care needs. Developing trust is actually fundamental. It's a fundamental start to developing that sort of holistic approach to improving and supporting people to recover. And that can often take quite a long time. And it often can take a lot of time with the same person. So it's really important, I think, when we are, as healthcare professionals, when we are seeing people who um, have experienced this degree of trauma and homelessness, that we take that into account and we try and ensure that we are flexible with our systems and our services, that people can see the same person regularly and build up that constant trusting relationship. So fascinating that actually, you know, that, that sometimes there's this barrier around rough sleepers or people who are homeless uh, being able to register with their GP. And I just wondered, what's behind that? Yeah, that's a, a really interesting question. And I don't think we really know. I think there's there's a lot of barriers being put up, I think, by, by, by receptionists. Um, and even when people are accompanied to register with a practice with a nurse or an outreach worker or a peer supporter, they come across barriers. And those barriers are, I think people are very stigmatised. People experiencing homelessness have told me that, that they've been treated very badly. They've been told that they smell and they should leave the room, um, that they should go register elsewhere. So we know that there, there are some fundamental unlawful barriers that are being put up for people to register. Apart from stigma, I think people um, also need to recognise that people often who experiencing homelessness often have quite complex needs. So um, I suppose in some ways will take more time um, to deliver good quality care to. And so does that then require presumably training for all members of a general practice team? Or is it that actually these services need to be set up as specialist primary care services for that group? Um, and not integrated into the kind of general general practice, if you know what I mean. I think there's a need for both. 
all services, all mainstream services need to be absolutely aware of the complexity of need of people experiencing homelessness and need to be supportive and inclusive in their practice. Nobody should be turned away. Everybody should be given the, the respect that they need and they, they, they deserve. In addition to that, I know that some people really do prefer and find it much easier to engage in services which are specialist services. And I worked for many years in a specialist primary care service. And I know that um, most of the people who were registered with us had had poor experience in other mainstream services. And that was, and they were really greatly relieved to finally find a service that gave them care and support in a holistic way. The other thing I'd like to add is that many people living in hostels or other emergency accommodation have often these very profound needs. And I think it's really important that primary care does recognise that and does inreach into these facilities because it's, it's really important where possible to try and take the care and support to people rather than expect them to have to come to see us in our in our practices, which can often be, with, with access, can be really quite challenging. What's been happening during the pandemic? So obviously we've spent almost a year now living with COVID. Has there been particular health support offered to rough sleepers during the pandemic? Was it part of the government's Everyone In initiative? Yes, very much. Um, I think it, it's been an extraordinary year, um, extraordinary number of months since COVID hit. And with an overwhelming response, actually, um, initially, to, to be honest, from the government in, in supporting people to get inside and out of off the streets, because we know that obviously the things like night shelters, overcrowded accommodation was clearly a, 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 not a possibility. Um, and so certainly in London alone, I think 7,000 people were found emergency accommodation, which, which shows how many people actually were on the street huge numbers of people on the street and, and, and more flowing to the street with economic problems from COVID. So um, a huge monumental effort on the, on the part of local authorities, GLA and, and others to find accommodation for people. The health response was fantastic in some places but patchy in others. So it was very variable, actually. Um, there, was a, there was a huge attempt to try and get support um, so get get people or register with GPs, but we know that there's still about 20% are not registered with GPs. Some areas provided in-reach support into the hotels because this was a massive opportunity to really help provide that wraparound health and support and identify unmet health needs and, and address them while people were inside. And in some areas that was done fantastically. The areas that responded better were those that had a specialist service already in place. So where there were specialist GP practices, it was quite easy to identify services that could be boosted to then do in-reach into the hotels. Where there was no, no um, particular specialist interest in this, um, there I think it, it was very difficult for commissioners to actually identify who could provide that support. The other thing is, obviously, all services have been under huge pressure, um, and including primary care. And, and I think it was felt that by, by some services that they just couldn't manage to do extra in-reach or support. And 
Where are we now? In your opinion, do you think that everyone in the initiative will make a long-term difference to rough sleepers and and those at risk of becoming rough sleepers in terms of preventing them from returning to the streets? Yes, absolutely. We know that already some people have been supported into longer-term accommodation, which is fantastic. Um, we hope, I hope that they're going to receive the support that they need in that longer term accommodation so i'm optimistic that if the supports are there for people then that can that can be their their end to homelessness and they can move onwards and upwards we know that there are some some fantastic success stories that many people um, having a roof over their head, having food, um, not struggling with what they're going to do um, every day to be able to, to survive, um, was a, were also able to reflect on where they were and move forward and onwards and out of homelessness. There was also an excellent um, responsive um, ability to get people linked in with addiction services. So there was a, the addiction services really stepped up in London as well to support people. And so we know that the everyone in really, really did help to turn many people's lives around. And I hope that for many, that will be a very long-term gain and it'll, st- it'll remain. That's not the same case for everybody. And for some people, the hotels were not providing the same amount the degree of support and uh, and they didn't work out for people and people ended up back on the street in some areas. More broadly, how can the NHS work with others to improve the health of people sleeping rough? So I think the role of the NHS is to ensure that everyone's registered with a GP and has access to inclusive primary health care. Um, the NHS also can support getting people into accommodation by advocating for, for people, but also advocating with other organisations, ensuring that there's really joined up support with social care, with addiction services, with mental health services. The other way the NHS can help is by actually doing much more inreach into areas where there are high rates of homelessness. The other thing I think the NHS can do is, is consider working more with peer-led organisations such as Groundswell. So really ensuring that the voice of people experiencing homelessness is heard with our service development, our service provision, but also the support of individuals. So Groundswell peers, for example, can support people to attend appointments um, and to provide that support that often others are not there to provide. Thanks, Caroline. So we've heard about some of the factors affecting people sleeping rough and what health and care services did during the pandemic. But what was it like to experience everyone in from a personal perspective? Our next guest is Paul Atherton, who talks us through his lived experience with homelessness. My name is Paul Atherton. Film producer, playwright, creative, generally dog's body. Uh, I specialise in social commentary. For the last 11 years now, I have been absent without a home. Being homeless is absent of, uh, of a home and not necessarily street homeless. So if somebody is sofa surfing, they are homeless. If somebody's in temporary accommodation, they are homeless. So in my journey over that 11 years, I have been four or five months in a no second night out shelter hub. Uh, I have lived in my car for two years. I've slept at Heathrow Airport for two years. I've spent about a year and a half at a night shelter in Decorum in Hertfordshire. Uh, I have sofa surfed on friends' floors. I have slept on night buses and night tubes. 
and very, very rarely I have actually slept on the street. I am currently residing in hotel accommodation in Marlebone in central London as part of the Everyone in Government initiative, uh, but I'm only here until the 6th of January 2021 when I return to the streets. Thanks, Paul. And can you tell me a bit about when you first became homeless, what was going on for you at that time? Sure. Um, I was living in an apartment. My flatmate and I were very happy there, but she decided to move on. So I was going to take over the tenancy. I did my usual due diligence, checked my credit file reports and discovered that an erroneous piece of information, a mistake, had been apportioned to my file. And that impacted my credit score hugely, taking me down from a gold or a green to a red or a black. Annoyingly, I had already had this piece of information removed off both my credit files. Four years earlier, both the companies that investigated proved it had nothing to do with me whatsoever and removed it. So when I discovered this, I went back and said, take this damn thing off. You know, this has got nothing to do with me. Here's the evidence from the last time we went through this fiasco. And they both said, no. So I said, well, there must be somebody who has more authority than you if you're refusing to do this. And they said, it's the information as commissioner's office, the ICO. And I wrote to them saying, look, this is all the evidence. This is all the facts. Could you please do something? Because I need to renew my tenancy in about six weeks. And they said, well, we take 28 days to sort this out. 18 months later, I get a letter from the ICO saying, dear Mr. Atherton, we apologize for the delay. We've had a significant backlog, but we can assure you we've investigated your claim. You're absolutely accurate. And we have advised that both the companies that investigated remove this off your file immediately. Well, 18 months was way, way too long. So obviously my estate agent couldn't renew. The stress of that prompted my condition. I suffer with a disability known as chronic fatigue syndrome to flare up. I then spent three months in hospital and I was discharged from hospital in a, into a homeless hostel in Brixton. And this began my homeless journey. I guess interesting that health was part of the story that precipitated you then becoming homeless. Yeah, I mean, I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome back when I was in university when I was about 21, 22. Um, so I spent about six weeks, I think eight weeks in hospital. And then I was discharged back uh, to the flat where I was living with my, my girlfriend, who's a nurse. And she looked after me for nigh on 18 months. I was bedridden for the first bout. And they believed that that had been triggered by my glandular fever when I was 10. So that condition has been something I've had to manage ever since. So regardless of whether I've had a home or uh, I've been absent of one, my fluctuating remitting condition is when it comes to symptoms means that, you know, there are times where I'm completely bedridden, unable to speak, unable to move, and I am utterly and totally reliant then on friends. And does your condition, does it also get made worse by the stresses of, of not having a permanent home? Yeah, I mean, basically every doctor you will ever talk to about chronic fatigue will always start off with, well, you must diminish your stress levels. <laughs> You're like, going, all right, well, uh, you know, give me, give me a place to live would be a good start in that equation. Um, yes, so I, I like nearly any condition, stress, you know, stress plays a factor in, in, in flaring up symptoms. Yeah, the, so the condition is absolutely, absolutely impinged by stress and stress factors. Um, ironically, 
being absent of a home per se is the least of the stress factors that is involved with homelessness. The real stress factors are having your benefits stop because you're too sick to attend a medical that's there to assess how sick you are. <laughs> you're like going, right? And, and you so suddenly your only means of feeding yourself has completely vanished. Or the bureaucratic nonsense that you have to go through spending hours and hours and hours writing to a council to, to get assistance with, through the local authority, only for them, A, not to read the emails, and B, then to sort of just point blank refuse to help or to not answer questions. So it's, it's those frustrations that create immense amounts of stress, and then those, that stress level then prompts the symptoms of chronic, and then you find yourself in this descending spiral where you actually, the one thing you needed was help and support and that it's the last thing anybody's given you until you eventually end up being completely reliant on somebody wheeling you or, uh, you know, sort of ringing an ambulance to take you into hospital. And you mentioned that you had been hospitalised for some weeks, kind of early on. Have you been hospitalised since then? Well, the the long stint that I've had in, in hospital was the three months that I was at St. Thomas's. That then became a, a war of attrition about bed blocking because chronic fatigue is an incurable and an untreatable disease. So as soon as you sort of encounter the hospital system, they immediately are going to try and get you out of the door before admitting you as soon as they realize that you're homeless. And the attitude at front desk changes they suddenly not convinced that there's anything wrong with you and you, you are just trying to blag a, a bed for the night. I was taken in because I was suffering with breathing difficulties and they got a, a false test on some lung condition that they tested for and it had proven positive. They only took me in on the basis of that. But once I was there and they realized a few, I think it was about a week later that it, they, they tested again and it came back as a negative that they went, ah, okay, well, we've got to get you out now. And then the remaining time was purely about clashing with the discharge team, the social services team, the local authorities, uh, about who was responsible and who was going to place me where and how. At that time, I was totally bedridden, so I was completely reliant on sort of nursing staff to you know, bring food and bring bedpans and the like. Yeah, so they needed to discharge me somewhere where I, I was going to get appropriate care. That didn't actually happen, but that was what was supposed to have happened. You said that you've been put in hotel accommodation during COVID as part of the Everyone in Government initiative. Did you get health support as part of that? Has there been targeted or proactive health as part of that package of support? No, um, there, there was no support whatsoever. And it's been across the board. I'm in contact with a lot of people who I was, uh, there was just over 270 of us, I think, taken in from Heathrow Airport. And I, I, I've been in touch with people who've been in different hotels and pockets of people who were distributed across London. Um, and pretty much across the board, nobody had any medical assistance. The, when they came out to get us from Heathrow, they basically queued us up and they were taking temperatures and asking if people had a cough. And the queue was really interesting. This is a classic homeless, people experiencing homeless moment where people in the queue were going, do we cough or do we not cough? Because are they going to take us in if we're ill <laughs> or are they going to refuse us if we're ill? And, and there was that sort of whole sort of mental state going. Um, and eventually when people figured out that they were just screening us off into three groups. So that was the vulnerable group, people asymptomatic, people symptomatic. 
they, they it was it was kind of going right fine we'll we'll just be honest about it but there was a, a real moment where it was like if we're ill and we're not going to get housed we're not going to say we're ill so um that was the start of it but after that there was absolutely nothing and you know the mental health care was taken away from lots of people uh, obviously people had a drug and alcohol addictions and they were just left to their own devices and invariably because they were they then couldn't deal with being inside and you kind of going and it's that classic moment if you've ever been through a, the system with homelessness charities or uh, homelessness support is it's like well you've got to stop drinking you've got to stop taking drugs and you've got to get your mental health sorted out before we will help you as if somehow a, a drug addict can just stop or an alcoholic can just stop and you're like, oh, that, that's not how this works. Um, so no, there was no medical support whatsoever. There was no transitionary support. I have received no carers here whatsoever. Nobody's checked in on me. I mean, I could have literally, if it wasn't for the hotel manager who I've got a good relationship with, I could have been dead here for the entire time and nobody would have known. So you said before that you've got accommodation, I think, until the 6th of January as part of the Everyone In initiative, but that after that, there's just a huge question mark. So what next for you? So I have been notified by the hotel manager that Westminster Council is stopping paying the housing benefit on the accommodation that I'm currently in, uh, which ends my time here on the 6th of January, 2021. However, I've not actually been told that by Westminster Council yet. And everyone in uh, actually started on the 3rd of April and ended on the 3rd of July. Since the 3rd of July, I've been sort of under this horrendous sort of Damocles, whereby I could be thrown out within less than 12 hours. Uh, and that has been sort of constant up until about three or three weeks ago when I was given this 6th of January date. Now, from your mental health perspective, once you're inside and you are given the taste of, I can cook three times a day, I can just get up in the morning and get to the shower. Chronic fatigue sufferers do everything in really, really small chunks um, because we don't know where our energy levels are going to be. We don't know how we're going to feel. We don't know what our ability is. For me at the moment, it's out of bed, five steps in the shower. For me at Heathrow, it's 50 steps down to the Piccadilly line, get the Piccadilly line tube to King's Cross, 120 steps from King's Cross to the uh, leisure centerings, King's Cross, making sure I've got my £2.50 to be able to get into a shower. Um, so you can imagine it doesn't take very much for me not to be able to get a shower. And so they're the big differences. So you, you, you've sort of created this static environment where you, you've incorporated your health condition and you are functioning, in fact, thriving. In fact, I thrive with or without a home, but it, it's easier to thrive with uh, a residence and a shower and a kitchenette. So, you know, my meals went from a three pound Tesco meal deal to I was eating fruit for breakfast and fresh veg for lunch and dinner and my body didn't know what hit it for the first three weeks. So yeah, so that, that had a huge impact on both my, my mental health and my physical health. And then, I realized that from August forward, um, my benefits were likely to stop as they've done. Uh, so you start going back to eating three pound meal deals. And of course, with that changes your mental health state. You suddenly, you just suddenly feel like, well, what's the point? What's the point of trying to struggle through all of this again? And then with that comes your physical health drops. 
because your energy drops because you're not eating healthily and then you, you, you and then you, you the depression starts seeping in um and then with all of that having the sort of damocles of going we may be kicking you up and then not being able to return to heathrow because heathrow is still in lockdown so you can only go there now if you are traveling so my fail safe doesn't even exist so having had this eight nine months of being inside I'm now being forced to leave in January in the midst of winter with nowhere else to go. Um, and sort of mentally, I, I'm not even thinking about it because to, to think ahead going, well, what's going to happen on the 6th of Jan would just mean I'd spend the next four weeks going, I don't know what's happening. But yeah, so I, I, I mean, it, it is the worst of all scenarios when it comes to your health because it's the precariousness of and knowing what's coming next. Now, I don't mind rolling with the punches. It's been my life since I was born. But when somebody goes, right, let's show you what we could do and look how easy it was to do that. So everyone in basically did what every homeless person has been saying for decades. It's like, get rid of the bureaucracy, get everybody in, get them the healthcare and support that they need, find them accommodation to their needs, and then we're sorted. That's homelessness done. And people, oh, well, we don't have the money, or we don't have this, or we don't have that. Well, everyone proved that was complete nonsense. But it did demonstrate that with the right political will and the right drive, that this was easily accomplishable. It, it, it was to get people out there, get people in, give them the support, and we can solve this problem forever. That's it. We, you know, we're done. We will never have homelessness in the UK again. This was the, the worst possible thing for people in my position, is that to, to bring us in, for us to then shine and show you just how great we can achieve things when we have these facilities around us and then to take it all away and then not just take it all away but make the situation 10 times worse than when we came in. Thank you Paul. We recorded with Paul just before Christmas and at that point in time he was facing eviction from his temporary accommodation on 6th of January with no clarity over what would happen next. Since then Paul is in the process of challenging his local council by way of judicial review, with the help of legal support. On this basis, he has had his stay extended until the 1st of March. However, his future accommodation arrangements remain uncertain. So, having heard from Paul about his personal experience and Dr Caroline Shulman about some of the specific health needs of those who sleep rough, we're left with a few big questions. What is the role of the NHS in addressing rough sleeping and will the government manage to hit its target of ending rough sleeping by 2024? Here's Dame Louise Casey. Stepping beyond COVID, in your experience, how well in general does the NHS serve the rough sleepers population? Not very well. I mean, look, the NHS, in my view, is the National Hospital Service. And anything else around the edges just becomes a side order. Um, and it's very hard to say that because one, you know, uh, like everybody, I adore the NHS and everything it stands for. And it's a symbolic of a post-war Britain that decided to do some really, really big things. For example, create the National Health Service. But as long as the National Health Service is essentially managing the symptoms of poor health, we're never going to get to the panacea of actually most health spend being out with hospitals because hospitals are less needed. And that's really the goal, isn't it? And actually, that's very hard to articulate. And it's at the moment 
crazy to even think about that because we're in the middle of a pandemic where we are so lucky in this country that we do have an NHS um, and we're so lucky in this country that it has universal support for all political parties. But as for the world, I mean, you know, I was in um, North Camden on Wednesday this week at a community centre, the Queen's Crescent Community Centre. The life expectancy of people in that estate is 12 years less than the people 10 minutes up the road in Mansfield Road. It's what we do about that. And the NHS doesn't march on that. It marches on saving our lives when we go into hospital and thank God it does. But there's a gap there, isn't there? The same way there's a massive gap around what we really want from social care. Um, and the fact that no government has actually bitten off the nettle of social care and decided to do something about it. Um, but, you know, I, I always think that that our treatment of the elderly and our treatment of people who are at the extreme ends of poverty just leaves an awful lot to be desired in the fifth or sixth richest country in the world. And that's out with pandemic times. And let's imagine that the NHS England and NHS Improvement Chief Executive Sir Simon Stevens is listening to this podcast. What advice would you have for him on what the NHS needs to do on the rough sleeping agenda? God love Simon at the moment. Um, he's, he's up to his eyes in it. But when, when the dust settles and we come through this, I think that what we have to look at is the people who the NHS doesn't touch, both from a prevention point of view or um, dealing with the symptoms. Now, let's, let's be clear, once people are in hostels, NHS engages. We've got some stunning GPs out there. But what was really interesting about last year was that thousands of those people were not near the NHS. And therefore, I think that the fact that they came into hotels means that we could get them GPs. It means that we can not just get them vaccinated for COVID, but actually vaccinated and screened for many other things. I, I guess my message isn't just about rough sleeping. To be honest, Helen, it's about all excluded groups where actually a health-led approach is often going to be the one that unlocks the door. Put nurses out in uniforms on the streets, homeless people respond to them. They respond to them time after time after time. Some of the most popular people in our day centres are basically the medics and the nurses because it's a very, it's an expression of love, isn't it? At the end of the day, it's the way society expresses our love and, and respect for each other is often through health. We carry each other through health. We don't question it. We don't judge it. We don't think, oh God, she's a bad person because she you know, smokes all the time. We, we can get a bit annoyed about that, but we still will look after her and express our solidarity and support with her when she's unwell. And I think that's the most important thing about excluded groups is that we consistently show that we will help them and that we are with them and we are of them. And I think that's, that's the message basically to everybody in public service right now is that's how we have to come out of this pandemic. We have to come out of it together and not apart. And that dealing with need, responding to need on the basis of need is a founding principle of the NHS. I wanted to ask you, so I saw an interview that you gave back in October last year in which you warned that the UK faces the period of destitution. How worried are you about the future given the potential long-term economic fallout of the pandemic? 
I, I think the thing is that this has gone on now for quite a long time, you know, to state the obvious, and um, there's no sign of getting back to normal. And the wounds inflicted by this virus go very, very deep into the world of poverty and unemployment and dispossession. And actually, because everybody's concentrating on the virus and, you know, we're all counting how many people are vaccinated daily and all of those really important things. If you look, for example, at, you know, let's take Barking and Dagnum, a kind of average London borough, it's not really poor and it's certainly not rich. March last year, they had 13,000 people on universal credit. October last year, they had 34,000 people on universal credit. In addition to that, in their working population, 40% of their working population was furloughed. Now, those sorts of numbers, Helen, like, you know, almost 6 million on universal credit, over 2.5 million unemployed, 4.6 million people being in debt. Those are the sorts of figures that, that show you that something really deep is going on and actually just just getting out of that is not going to be as straightforward. So I continue to be concerned about this short-termism of, you know, another month, another three months, free school meals for another term, um, not people not knowing where they are with the tiny uplift actually in, in universal credit of the 20 pounds a week. You know, all of these small things which are really big to the government you know, we, we can't roll back on any of that anytime soon. And we could also choose this moment to actually do a much better job in Britain of looking after the people that are, are the have-nots. You know, that's, yeah. what, that's what Brexit told us. That's what the pandemic is telling us. You know, we could put aside, you know, the extremes of politics and just rebuild a Britain where health is available to all, truly all, where people are not living on benefits that mean they have to go to food banks and that people where there are no jobs are getting proper employment training and opportunities so that they can at least see hope for their children, even if they can't see hope for themselves. And that's the Britain that we need to rebuild. So the government has committed to end rough sleeping by the end of this parliament. I just wanted to ask you, do you think that target can be achieved? Not at the moment, no. Rough sleeping and solving it is like an overflowing bathtub for anybody that has a bath. And basically what it is, is the taps are pouring in. And what you do with an overflowing bath in human nature is you actually, the first thing you do is you switch the taps off. Nobody's switching the taps off. So the causes of homelessness continue to flood into the bath. You then put your, you switch the taps off. So you go back to things like, even in the height of the pandemic last year with everyone in, there were people being discharged from hospital and prisons to the street. So if you can't switch those taps off, you continue to literally deal with the symptoms and the symptoms and symptoms of that, which is your overflowing bathtub. And the trick we also need to do is when that bathtub is full of the same people for over two years, they're not, they're going to be sick. I mean, you can call it, you can call it an addiction. You can call it whatever language you want to use about it, but they're sick. And when people are sick, you heal them. That's what you do. And so I think until we've gripped those two things, which is, you know, how do you really get to people with long-term multiple needs and get them off the street permanently is more than a hotel bed. 
you know, it, it, it's more than a hotel bed. And how you switch the taps off is profoundly, absolutely vital. Otherwise, you just keep running around and running around, opening more and more shelters. So their rough sleeping strategy that they published a couple of years ago won't stand the test of that. And that's why, and they know that. I mean, the, the everyone in work and the work that's happened since will absolutely get those numbers down. I mean, the numbers are much, much lower than they than they were a year ago. And that's not just the work that I was involved with, it's the work after, after I've gone, but it won't solve rough sleeping. Thank you. Despite the success of everyone in, rough sleeping remains a huge issue with multiple challenges lying ahead. Taking a holistic approach to the lives of individuals who sleep on the streets that includes responding to their health needs will be an essential part of any future solutions. Some progress has clearly been made during COVID-19. We'll be looking out for what comes next. A huge thank you to each of our guests today, Dame Louise Casey, Paul Atherton and Dr Caroline Shulman. That's it from us. You can find show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. We'd love you to subscribe, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts as it helps others to find us and helps us to improve the show. You can get in touch with us via Twitter, either at the Kings Fund or my account at Helena Macarena. Thanks as always to you for listening, but also to our podcast team for this episode. Producer Ian Ford, researcher Jonathan Holmes, and special thanks to my colleagues Armina Barmal and Julia Cream for their input too. We hope you can join us next time.